0: recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.LeadLagReport.com. Use promo code Podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Gyat.
1: My name is Michael Guyad. I'm the publisher of The Lead Lag Report and our special guest for the hour, John Malden. So, John, the last time I saw you, I think, was maybe four years ago. I think I was having lunch with – it was you, Barry Ritholtz, and a few other well-known personalities. You've been in the industry for a long, long time. A lot of people are familiar with your background, but for those who are not – Talk about who you are, what you do, and what got you involved in markets.
2: Well, I actually started in the early 80s, very early 80s, as as a publisher, writer of newsletters. I didn't write my own, but I published other people. 80, 87, 88, sold out of that, banged around for a while, then became a partner with a commodity broker, and we brokered public commodity funds. And this was back in the day when... You could actually have a commodity fund that would work. I mean, today it's it's commodity funds are much more difficult today. But back then, you could you know we had traders and funds that were just shooting lights out uh, because the markets were a fraction of the size they are today, and so it got big very fast. And towards the end of the nineties, I started doing my own writing. I started writing. My partner and I very amicably. Uh, split. But we're still good friends, but I launched on my own and started writing a newsletter to do lead generation, just you know, regular money management. And I stuck it on the internet as an afterthought. It wasn't this grand design, and I'll be dang! But it took off. I mean, I started with a couple thousand names, and a few months later, it was at twenty thousand, and all of a sudden, you're at fifteen, a hundred thousand, and then you're at a million. I mean but it was one of the one of the first free letters. everybody else was still trying to trying to charge for it, and it just took off and it's become my it's my prime public face. I mean I still manage money I do it through referrals actually I have partners that manage money, and the you know my day is absorbed by reading information, thinking about it, writing about it. I post on Twitter, and then just having conversations i mean it's it's and I live in Puerto Rico. I moved here about three and a half years ago. So, I mean, I live in paradise and it's, it's, uh, you know, half mile, five, you know, five minutes from the beach, but on our golf carts, we have, we live here with two golf carts and one car, you know, it's sort of a gated community and a club and it's, It's just about as idyllic as you can get. I mean, I could write from anywhere in the world, so I might as well write from paradise. And I write on economics, finance. I've had eight books, five bestsellers. They should have all been bestsellers. I write on a variety of topics. So this week, I'll give everybody a preview. I'm getting ready to call a recession coming, which I've done twice before. Timing was good. So it would be nice if I would be wrong, but I feel that I have to make that call. So
1: back in, I want to say it was 2011. When I started writing on Seeking Alpha, started getting published by Mark Faber of the Gloom Boom and Doom Report. Yeah, I had reached out to you, and you had actually published you know some of the analysis that I, I created for you many many years ago. So uh, I, I credit you know kind of the snowball credibility effect of writing for for Faber, Ritholtz, you in my in the early stages of my sort of public facing side of my investing career. So yeah, I appreciate it. And thank you for that. So so let's let's hit on this this point about where we are and, and the name of the space. I, I said a, res- a recession is here because the thing about recessions is that they're often called after they're way underway, right? Correct, so correct. this got kind of a little bit of a kind of a thought experiment, but let's lay it out from your vantage point in terms of how you're looking at the world here, how you're looking at asset classes and the economy. What makes you think that we are either entering or in a recession, and how does this environment stack up against other prior ones? Because if we are in a recession, this one seems to be potentially something unlike anything the world's really ever seen. Yeah. Um, so let,
2: let's talk through that. Well, I, the, the title of my letter this week will be Another Strange Recession, because the COVID recession was a strange recession. Just hit us out of the blue. in, in this one, I think, is going to be kind of like that, in, in the sense that 2001 and 2007, when I said we're going to have a recession, I was looking at a deeply inverted yield curve. And without going into details, there's a great deal of research uh, by the Fed and by other economists about how deep the inversion gets, what's the likelihood of a recession. And the probability was, was pretty high. So it was, it was in one sense, an easy call to make. And by the way, a, a mild inversion doesn't necessarily precede a recession. It, it, it needs to be for real and it needs to last for some time. And an inverted yield curve doesn't cause a recession. It's more like it's telling you, it's more like a fever. If you get a fever, that's your body telling you something's wrong in your body. doesn't necessarily, you're going to get a fever for lots of reasons, but the fever tells you there's something wrong in your body. An inverted yield curve tells us there's something wrong in our economic body. And right now, The yield curve is trying to invert, but the Fed has got the short rates at you know the zero bound, so it it can't really revert, invert. And is the Fed going to raise rates enough—75 bips, 100 bips—to get to where you know the curve does get flat? I, I I think they have to. I mean, first of all, I've been saying they've been. Behind on the monetary policy for a year, they they, they made their monetary policy last January. The m- monetary policy mistake by not beginning to slowly raise rates. They could have they could have raised rates every other meeting, and and so we'd be at one percent now. They could have begun to reduce the buying, you know, by ten million a month. I mean, sorry, ten billion a month. So it would have gotten a little bit less stimulus into the economy. Now, we're seeing a lot of inflation simply because supply chain issues, and now we're seeing it because of the Ukraine war. As I wrote last week, we weaponized the financial system, and now we're weaponizing commodities. So when I look at the global economy today, we're going to see globally inflation. I mean, inflation is now in the 5 6% range in, in Europe and Germany, and the ECB is, is not going to uh, move off their stance. So it's just going to get worse. I think Powell is committed to uh, going after inflation, but much of the inflation that the Fed caused was asset price inflation, which shows up in housing costs and cars and other things like that. So that will come off some, but a lot of the energy, the cost of goods, the supply chain, that's not going to go away. So he's going to have to lean into it. And so we're, we're going to be tightening. As the economy is slowing down, GDP for the first quarter, when we finally get through it, is likely to, well likely to be well under 1%. The second quarter is when I think the recession will start. But it's going to be a global recession. I mean, you take so much food because of the importance of Ukraine and Russia in and, and the you know, the grains and, and a lot of the food change, especially in oils, seed, sunflower oils and other oils like that, That's going to create real problems throughout the global supply chain and create hunger issue and price issues. The You start pulling nickel out and say, we're, we're not going to take nickel from Russia, which is, you know, blowing the, the, the numbers off. That has consequences for chips, 60% of the neon gas, which is, absolutely required for chip manufacturing comes from one company in ukraine and that could very easily go offline or you know be blown up because the russians are just randomly lobbing bombs they don't know where it's going to hit i mean i don't they they weren't targeting a uh, maternity hospital they just that just happened to be where the artillery shell hit that's going to set up massive changes in the whole globalization of the of trading. And so I don't believe we're going to deglobalize, as opposed as, as so much as re-globalize. We're going to change the way we do global trading. And we're going to break into blocks, if you will. Now, over time, we get it figured out. That's what humanity does. That's what businessmen do. But in the short term, it's going to be disruptive, And we're already at less than 1% GDP. We're at stall speed, if you will. And it's not going to take much to push us into an actual recession or so close to it that it, it's the difference is meaningless. I don't believe the Democrats will let Powell off the hook prior to the November uh, elections. They want him to be seen as, as fighting inflation. They want inflation to come down. And March, we could see a 10% number. It's not impossible at all, given where energy and housing inflation shows up with a lag of you know, ten, twelve, fifteen months. Even though the inflation's already occurring, it shows up with a lag the way the the uh BLS actually charts it. Not a very good way to do it, but that's the way they do it. And yeah. and on that kind of re globalization, it sounds like part of that
1: is uh, part of that reglobalization is nationalization, right, of resources, natural resources, right? And and I think it was I think it was Hungary, right, that decided to ban exports, I think, of some staples and it wouldn't surprise me if you have sort of another a uh, bunch of other countries announcing something similar.
2: So oh, oh, you're gonna you're gonna see that just all over. I mean, a leader of a country is not gonna say, sure, export our food, export something that we need just because these businesses wanna make money over here, but our people are gonna go hungry. <laughs> that's just that's just not a that's just not a political choice. It it's not the you know, it's not of the leader of Hungary is being a, a jerk about it. It's just he doesn't have any political choice. So he's got to make sure his people are fed. And it's not clear, given the dependence they had on Ukraine and Russia and everything else, that they could, you know, get by with shipping that food out. So you'll see lots of countries doing that. And so it's not so much nationalizing the food. it's just saying you can't export it. I imagine that we'll probably have some things that we're not going to want to export in the U S yeah, I think that's, that's right. Dinner last night with a partner of a significant three and a half, $4 billion money manager. And their focus is on high and growing dividends, you know, major caps, and then a lot of hedge funds, private credit funds, just alternatives and their portfolio is down one percent for the year. So, I mean, the way we run money with my partner is we run lots of private credit, a lot of alternatives, hedge funds, and so forth. And and we manage traders as opposed we trade ETFs. Or we don't we don't buy them long in the sense of buy and hold. So, our portfolios are down a few points now. If you're in a, we're going to buy this asset and we're going to hold it, you know, we're going to buy Vanguard, buy the cheapest. Yeah, you you can have some problems with that. But I just don't think that's. it's been the way to invest for the last 10 years because it was easy and cheap. Uh, Money management, good money managers are going to earn their money here in the next year and a half, two years. And people are going to realize, well, maybe I should have had a manager. And bad money managers are going to, you know, find out that their clients are going to migrate somewhere else. This will be, to pick on a name, people that are double beta, like Ken Fisher, other, other big fund, you know, there's a lot of big names out there. They're basically just double beta. And when the markets are going up, that's hellacious. You look brilliant, but it's rough on the way down. So I like to look at, maybe it's just, and this is my core, I look more at volatility and risk than I do about returns. I think you can make high high uh, single digits and Without without having to take a lot of ball, uh, I don't have to. I don't have to worry about being down forty percent. I might be down 18 percent, but I can I can do it with a lot of ball, without a lot of ball. There's private credit now. The sad thing is, you have to be an accredited investor to get into it. But there's lots of private credit opportunities out there that are good, they're solid, that you can make seven eight nine percent. If you're moving, willing to move out the risk curve, you can make low double digits. And they're available generally because they're smaller. If something gets big, then Apollo or Fortress, someone like just snaps it up. We'll, we'll, we'll take all 300 million of it, please. Thank you. So there's a lot of funds out there that are 25, 50, 75 million, not big enough for the big boys to come into, but they'll pay, you know, eight, nine, ten 10%. They're happy with that. Their business model works with that. So, and you have to be creative. You have to have managers who have access to that deal flow. It's,
1: I think the 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 way you framed it, this sort of weaponizing of commodities is is interesting. And I, I, as I was mentioning this point about nationalization, I got a DM from Brian Zarb. I haven't checked this, but I'm going to assume it's correct. See, he sent me a message saying Hungary, Ukraine, and Egypt just came out banning export of food today, which kind of goes to this point that you're going to see. Him, more and more of this secluding of the ag space by by country. Now, the thing is, John, let's play this out as a thought experiment because, you know, if you're going to have food prices staying elevated and these concerns keep on resulting in, in banning of exports of staples, that really can't persist for that long without severe societal consequences. Right. It's like, so if you ever look at any of these books or any of these if you watch any of these shows on, on apocalyptic type scenarios, <laughs> zombies or or some kind of flu or something like that, it, it, the, the assumption is always that within a week, the, the society's whatever's left just collapses. Right. There's, there's no sense of sort of morals. It's just do whatever you can to survive. And who cares about being a good person because you can't eat? So how do you think this plays out in terms of social mood? Because, you know, if you're really going to be bearish, what may be coming I've, – I've alluded to this on Twitter – what may be coming for society could conceivably be way worse than, than COVID if it persists.
2: Well, it depends on the country you're in. Egypt, yes. I mean i they don't export that much food, but they import an enormous amount of wheat and, and even more oil from Ukraine and Russia, and they subsidize food to their population. So people are buying below market cost wheat and bread, and that price is going to double. And that means the Egyptian government is going to be on the hook for billions of dollars if they want to maintain that subsidy to their uh, citizens. And they're probably going to want to, because otherwise they have riots in the street. And that does get apocalyptic in places like Egypt or You know, other countries, I'm going to put a chart in in my letter tomorrow, let's go out Saturday, that will show the percentages of various food and ag products that many of the countries in Europe and along the Mediterranean and North Africa get. And it's, for some countries, it's pretty staggering. I mean, Lebanon is almost 90%, 95% uh, dependent on Ukraine for its food. Well, now they've got to resource those markets. It's, it's you know, if... We're in, for certain agricultural products, Ukraine is actually, you know, some of the grains, Ukraine's actually supposed to be harvesting right now. Corn, they're supposed to be planting here in the next two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. I don't know how much of that's going to happen. I mean, they've torn up a lot of the actual farmland. Though, aside, I'm sure you guys, if you go on Twitter, you've seen the kind of humorous notes that the fifth largest uh, military power in the world today is actually the Ukrainian farmer's. Because they keep showing all these tanks that they're towing, but it, it's—I I don't know—I don't know how they—I don't know how they how that food A gets planted, and B, even if it does get planted, how long are the, how long are they going to be in a, in a shooting war so that nothing gets shipped? It's it's a very problematic assertion. I don't think the sanctions against Russia come off anytime soon. I mean, Russia would have to pull out and. Say okay, Ukraine. Here's a hundred billion dollars, or two hundred billion dollars, or whatever for you know reparations. Uh, that's not going to happen. So these sanctions and all the ramifications, all up and down the line. Yeah, you know, yes. Eventually, they figure out where a lot of that energy goes to China, and some of it, some of the metals and some of the other stuff shows up in China. So everything gets repurposed. But it doesn't – they don't have the infrastructure to move it today. All of the energy that's going into China from Russia today is coming from eastern Siberia Russia. It's not coming from the west. And they just don't have any pipelines to get it there. Pipelines don't get built overnight. I mean, you can transport it by trains, but that's expensive. That's a really important point, right, because
1: I kind of feel like most <laughs> most people – they think that commodities can be shipped very, very easily. It's almost like you know an Amazon driver dropping off a package at your house the right. next day, right? But the reality is, on the back end, this stuff is is wildly complicated. Right? Uh, talking uh, to Diego Prilla uh, on a space company, and he was making the point that you know why can't you move uh, net gas that, that that easily because it's it's a gas, <laughs> right? So you know it, it is a kind of interesting the way to. The way most people, I think, probably underestimate lead times, right? And and I go back to all it takes is a few days, conceivably, for things to really get ugly for most people if they don't have the resources readily uh, accessible.
2: Well, that is, and it's hard to say because one of the the things that we have to understand about uh, about recessions is they are by definition deflationary. So okay, we're well, we're gonna have to hit on that. I'm glad you said that. Okay, go go, go ahead. Okay, so. Though it will never be uttered in a public space, and I doubt that they even allow themselves to mentally think this, the the, the Fed needs a couple quarters of a mild recession. It helps bring inflation down. Uh, a one percent boost in the unemployment rate or two percent boost in the unemployment rate helps control wages. The I mean, they're they've taken the boost to the money supply that they've been shoving in. And that's going to help bring. That's going to likely bring asset prices down. Well, that pulls people in on spending. That helps control inflation. So you get inflation down to the to where it's got a two handle, because we're in a recession as opposed to still growing. Then the Fed can come back in and say, "Okay, we're going to we're going to do some more QE." Not that we need that. I mean, if the Fed did no QE at all the economy will cover. Businesses figure out what they have to do to work in the current environment. That's what businesses do. That's what entrepreneurs do. I mean, a recession is a 1% or 2% slowdown in the economy. Okay, If your income goes down 1% or 2%, Michael, your your world doesn't end. You'd prefer it to go up 1% or 2%, but you just figure out what to do. If you can't get your food from one place, you go to another store, you, you figure out how these things happen in your life. But businesses figure that have to figure that out too. They've got to figure out, okay, what can I substitute for X or Y? How do I get this new source? But it takes time. I mean, I remember talking with Ray Hunt of the Hunt Brothers, and the we were at a dinner one night, and he was talking about the Venezuela that was becoming the topic. He's talking about frustrations because we were embargoing Venezuela at the time. And, you know, they've had refineries for, you know, decades and decades down along Houston, all the way, you know, into Mobile, taking Venezuelan heavy crude back before Venezuela was a pariah state. And I said, well, why don't you just adjust it for to take um, the stuff that's coming out of the Bakken, you know, take the, the light sweet. He says. Let me tell you how it works if you begin to share. It was like a three minutes took me to school on the hundreds of millions of dollars it takes to change that refinery from heavy crude to light sweet crude and the years it takes to do that. You're just it is it's not a click of a button. It's not a shift of a year. And a lot of things. I mean, that's why we're importing uh, Russian heavy crude. It's not because we wanted to buy that from Russia. We just need heavy crude somewhere, Uh, and if we don't get that heavy crude, we're not going to have enough gas. We're not going to have enough distillates, and our distillates then the prices go up even more. Now, we could have approved the Keystone Pipeline, and we could be getting our heavy distillates from Canada, and not from Russia, or not having to fly to Venezuela to deal with Maduro, who is one of the you know biggest despots, who's just destroying the people of uh uh Venezuela. So we don't have to fund him. We could actually be if you weren't if you weren't in the back pocket of a bunch of eco climate change enthusiasts. That's a word. Climate change enthusiasts that, way to say it, I think. that's a PC way to say it. You 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 open up the Keystone Pipeline, you get that going, and you take that heavy sour crude that they specialize in, in Alberta they're They're now having to use trucks and tankers to ship it well those are a pipeline, and we get a lot more of it and it helps bring our gas prices down and We don't have to live a uh, deal with thugs in Iran or uh, Venezuela or russia so i mean it, at some point you just have to there there just has to be some realities to how we deal with the whole energy thing how we deal with the food i mean we're fortunate in the United States that we're, we're a food exporter. We're not going to have to worry about going hungry in terms of having the availability of food. But the prices are going to go up because the, the world price is the world price. There's no silver lining. I mean, we're going to reorganize how the world works. That's going to take years to, in terms of reglobalization. globalization It's just not something you can... Click a button here and say, well, okay, we'll, we'll go over there. Millions of people, millions and millions of people are being displaced. We're going to see a food crisis for a while. We've seen destructions of, of, of cities. Russia, the sanctions aren't going to come off. They control, even though they're a small economy, they're, they're literally smaller economically than Texas is. I mean, they're, they're, Texas is bigger on a GDP scale. It it really is going to just screw up supply chains everywhere. We've, We've gone through a massive supply chain problem with COVID. This is, I don't want to say 10 times, but it's a multiple times worse supply chain issue for lots of foods, commodities. But then that figures into chips, which goes into everything. It figures into all sorts of things that have to have nickel. And tin and and the other things that it it figures into fertilizer and potash. Belarus has something, I don't know, like 20, 25% of the potash in the world comes from Belarus. These things just don't sort themselves out that quickly.
1: So the Fed's going to raise rates into a war, into a slowing economy, and into an environment where credit spreads are now widening. Good luck with that.
2: Well, that's one of the reasons why we're going to see a recession. I mean recessions generally happen are almost always accompanied by preceded by rising oil prices. We've got that on steroids. And they're almost always accompanied by a monetary policy mistake, either too much tightening or whatever. We've had the the, the monetary policy mistake was the last January and I've been saying that for a year, over a year now. And so yeah, the Fed is, as you said, Michael, tightening into a recession. I think they're going to reduce their balance sheet. We'll see how aggressive they are about it. But I would be shocked if they don't raise rates at least three times, if not four times this year. I would take, if you said five, I'd take the under. If you said three, I'd take the over. I think four is probably what they're likely to do. And then, you know, try to get the economy out of a a recession. Because recessions typically don't last long, And, and, and I use the word typical, but the supply shocks we're getting are not typical. We're going to see demand crush that's not typical. So what we're walking into is not something that's we've seen before.
1: The rising dollar, you know, all this is going to result in some kind of a massive sovereign debt crisis. Right? So riff on that, John. Well,
2: we'll be back after a quick break. Hello
1: listeners, Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report/slash lead lag live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion.
2: The Federal Reserve is the United States Federal Reserve. And they're responsible for the United States. They're not responsible for the world. Now, everybody can can, can sit and pontificate. They should be responsible for the world or, you know, whatever. That's not the way... Each of those guys in the room thinks they're all hometown boys. And if the dollar gets stronger, then it just gets stronger. They'll open swap lines to countries. They'll try to make as many dollars available to the world as possible. But it's they're, they're just not going to consider the strength of the dollar to be a problem when inflation is at 7.9 and could be at 9% or 10% uh, here in another month or so. They they have to be seen, it. and to answer your question, can they bring the price of oil down? No. Can they fix the supply chain problems? No. You they have to be seen to be doing something. They can't. They literally do not have the option to do nothing. So doing something is raising rates. Doing something will be reducing the balance sheet. I argued. The last time when they were increasing rates and decreasing their balance sheet that they should do one or the other or not, I think they should increase rates to get them to where they want to and then begin to decrease the balance sheet because otherwise you're doing a two-variable experiment and you're not certain which variable is is going to be the cause of the problem. I, I, From what it sounds like today, they're going to start reducing the balance sheet at least somewhat. And they can do that just by letting, you know, the government's mortgages run off, letting the treasuries just run off. They don't have to do any selling. They can just let it run off. You've raised a very good point. And the answer is, we don't know the knock-on effects yet. We don't know what kind of swap lines the Fed is going to open. It, It is... It is very possible. I mean, what what happened in 98 was a, you know, the Russians defaulted. You had, it spilled over into currency problems in uh, Asia. You're going to get a default by Russia, this de facto default there. They're already telling people that if you owe countries in dollars and, you know, they're part of the sanction group, you can pay them in rubles and just go on and you're fine. That's going to, upset things and will create credit uh, defaults all up and down the line we're going to see a lot of hedge funds go go bankrupt I think over the next month a month month and a half we'll find out who was who had you know, normal hedges on normal hedges on but the sh- you know they, they they were long and short different commodities and one commodity just blew out on their sh- their short side and you know got everything got out completely out of whack and they they couldn't meet their margin calls. We're gonna we're gonna see these things happen, and then it, you get a, you get a sort of a trickle effect. More people look into the dollar as a safe haven, to the euro to some extent. So anybody that's got dollar denominated debt, euro dollar de- euro denominated debt, is going to have more difficulty. It's it, it becomes this cascade, this waterfall. It's very difficult. And right now, we just don't know. Warren Buffett's old line, you know, you find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. Well, the tide's going out. We're going to find out even, you know, if, as you said, countries that don't have a great deal of debt, but it's still a dollar denominated. We'll, we'll see how that works. When you think about how much dollar denominated debt China has, they, they're, they're going to have to be coming up with dollars. Now, they've got a lot of dollars, and not, but it's it's some of those countries, like uh, companies like Evergrande and others, it's not clear that China's going to force them to pay. They may just let them go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, I want to revisit something you said before for the last seven minutes here, which is recessions are deflationary. Now, one of my personal and professional great frustrations here is that if we all tilt towards the idea that we're entering a recession sooner than most people think, well, the problem is treasuries are not acting like the recessionary asset. Now, we can go into an argument around staculation, <laughs> which we yes, now, right. What think, is, right? Because even in the 70s, it, it, you'd be hard-pressed to find consecutive streaks where day after day after day, stocks fall, treasuries fall. Right, meaning yields rise, meaning just the, the the correlation on a streak level. What we're seeing here is unprecedented, right? And I I I hear everybody's argument around stagflation. The the issue that I have with the notion that this is like the '70s is that debt to GDP is way 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 higher, right? So let's play that out. Now I, I've made the argument that one of the reasons I believe gold is doing what it's doing this year is because if you think about your classic risk-off assets, right, that benefit from, from stock market volatility. Historically, it's long-duration treasuries, flight-to-safety bid. Gold would be next, and then the dollar. So the dollar's already run pretty hard. Treasuries obviously are not working f- during this juncture. So by default, gold gets the attention. But at what point do you think the bond market, the treasury side, in, an, in seeing a recession now starts to act more like a classic hedge, where yields actually drop on the long end, you end up seeing ETFs like TLT start to run again as equities fall because this is very unusual
2: in the relationship of the two asset classes here. It is, but remember the five-year inflation uh, expectation inflation rates now three and a half for the ten-year to be and and it's over three when you go out to ten years when you have inflation expectations. Well above three, to say that we should have a ten year fall from whatever it is today, one nine, one nine five, I don't have a screen in front of me. We were already out of whack. It may be that infl- the ten year rising in price is the adjustment. To to think that somehow or another the ten years got to go to one percent simply because it's a recession doesn't follow. It may very well. My, my good friend, Lazy Hunt, thinks we're going to see lower rates on the 10-year and 30 than we've seen uh, during the last cycle. So, but the path to get there is not clear yet. The, I keep coming back to the monetary policy mistake, but they just screwed it up. And the government put too much stimulus in with that last $2 trillion round, and they stimulated us to inflation. Because they put too much demand into the economy, and because people couldn't buy experiences, they couldn't buy travel, they couldn't buy services, they bought stuff, and that created a supply chain issue. I mean, people think that well, we're not, get, we're just not getting enough containers in into our ports. We're getting as much or more containers into Long Beach and L.A. than we've done at any time. It's just that the demand is for more. The, the we, we broke the, the supply and demand ch- curve and I think that last two trillion dollars as Larry Summers wrote out in his op ed piece when he when he said if you pass this we're gonna see inflation he was right and then he wrote recently in, in the Washington Post that they're gonna to have to that Powell's gonna have to raise rates and he will be extraordinarily lucky if he can get away without causing a
3: recession. And I think
1: he's right. Yeah, I really appreciate the hour here.
3: The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.